Section 46 of Library of the World's Best Literature Ancient and Modern Volume 6 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Jyoti Taravanath Library of the World's Best Literature Ancient and Modern Volume 6 by various authors section 46 kenam and lily from kenam chillingly the children have come some thirty of them pretty as english children generally are happy in the joy of the summer sunshine on the flower lawns on the feast under cover of an awning suspended between chestnut trees and carpeted with sward no doubt Kenham held his own at the banquet, and did his best to increase the general gaiety, for whenever he spoke the children listened eagerly, and when he had done they laughed mirthfully. The fair face I promised you, whispered Mrs. Brayfield, is not here yet. I have a little note from the young lady to say that Mrs. Cameron does not feel very well this morning, but hopes to recover sufficiently to come later in the afternoon and pray who is mrs cameron ah i forgot that you are a stranger to the place mrs cameron is the aunt with whom lily resides is it not a pretty name lily very emblematic of the spinster that does not spin with a white head and a thin stock then the name belies my lily as you will see the children now finished their feast and betook themselves to dancing in an alley smoothened for a croquet ground under the sound of a violin played by the old grandfather of one of the party while mrs brayfield was busying herself with forming the dance kenham seized the occasion to escape from a young nymph of the age of twelve who had sat next to him at the banquet and taken so great a fancy to him that he began to fear she would vow never to forsake his side, and stole away undetected. There are times when the mirth of others only saddens us, especially the mirth of children with high spirits that jar on our own quiet mood, gliding through a dense shrubbery in which, though the lilacs were faded, the laburnum still retained here and there the waning gold of its clusters. Kenham came into the recess which bounded his steps and invited him to repose. It was a circle, so formed artificially by slight trellises, to which clung parasite roses heavy with leaves and flowers. In the midst played a tiny fountain with a silvery murmuring sound at the background, dominating the place, rose the crests of stately trees on which the sunlight shimmered but which rampired out all horizon beyond. Even as in life do the great dominant passions, love, ambition, desire of power, or gold, or fame, or knowledge, form the proud background to the brief-lived flowerets of our youth, lift our eyes beyond the smile of their bloom, catch the glint of a loftier sunbeam, and yet, and yet, exclude our sight, from the lengths and widths of the space which extends behind 
and beyond them. Kenham threw himself on the turf beside the fountain. From afar came the whoop and the laugh of the children in their sports or their dance. At the distance their joy did not sadden him. He marvelled why, and thus, in musing reverie, thought to explain the why to himself. The poet, so ran his lazy thinking, has told us that distance lends enchantment to the view, and thus compares to the charm of distance the illusion of hope. But the poet narrows the scope of his own illustration. Distance lends enchantment to the ear as well as to the sight, nor to these bodily senses alone. Memory, no less than hope, owes its charm to the far away. I cannot imagine myself again a child when I am in the midst of yon noisy children. But as the noise reaches me here, subdued and mellowed, and knowing, thank heaven, that the urchins are not within reach of me, I could readily dream myself back into childhood and into sympathy with the lost playfields of school. So surely it must be with grief. How different the terrible agony for a beloved one just gone from earth to the soft regret for one who disappeared into heaven years ago. So with the art of poetry, how imperatively, when it deals with the great emotions of tragedy, it must remove the actors from us, in proportion as the emotions are to elevate, and the tragedy is to please us by the tears it draws. Imagine our shock if a poet were to place on the stage some wise gentleman with whom we dined yesterday, and who was discovered to have killed his father and married his mother. But when Oedipus commits those unhappy mistakes, nobody is shocked. Oxford, in the nineteenth century, is a long way off from Thebes three thousand or four thousand years ago. And, continued Kenham, plunging deeper into the maze of metaphysical criticism, even where the poet deals with persons and things close upon our daily sight, if he would give them poetic charm, he must resort to a sort of moral or psychological distance. The nearer they are to us in external circumstance, the farther they must be in some internal peculiarities. Werther and Clarissa Harlow are described as contemporaries of their artistic creation, and with the minutest details of an apparent realism. Yet, they are at once removed from our daily lives by their idiosyncrasies and their fates. We know that while Werther and Clarissa are so near to us, in much that we sympathize with them as friends and kinsfolk, they are yet as much remote from us in the poetic and idealized side of their natures as if they belong to the age of Homer. And this it is that invests with charm the very pain which their fate inflicts on us. Thus, I suppose, it must be in love. If the love we feel is to have the glamour of poetry, it must be love 
for someone morally at a distance from our ordinary habitual selves in short differing from us in attributes which however near we draw to the possessor we can never approach never blend in attributes of our own so that there is something in the loved one that always remains an ideal a mystery a sun-bright summit mingling with the sky from this state half comatose half unconscious kenham was roused slowly reluctantly something struck softly on his cheek again a little less softly he opened his eyes they fell first upon two tiny rosebuds which on striking his face had fallen on his breast and then looking up he saw before him in an opening of the trellised circle a female child's laughing face her hand was still uplifted charged with another rosebud but behind the child's figure looking over her shoulder and holding back the menacing arm was a face as innocent but lovelier far the face of a girl in her first youth framed round with the blossoms that festooned the trellis how the face became the flowers it seemed the fairy spirit of them kenham started and rose to his feet the child the one whom he had so ungallantly escaped from ran towards him through a wicket in the circle her companion disappeared is it you said kenham to the child you who pelted me so cruelly ungrateful creature did i not give you the best strawberries on the dish and all my own cream but why did you run away and hide yourself when you ought to be dancing with me replied the young lady evading with the instinct of her sex all answers to the reproach she had deserved i did not run away and it is clear that i did not mean to hide myself since you so easily found me out but who was the young lady with you i suspect she pelted me too for she seems to have run away to hide herself no she did not pelt you she wanted to stop me and you would have had another rosebud oh so much bigger if she had not held back my arm don't you know her don't you know lily no so that is lily you shall introduce me to her by this time they had passed out of the circle through the little wicket opposite the path by which kenham had entered and opening at once on the lawn here at some distance the children were grouped some reclined on the grass some walking to and fro in the interval of the dance before he had reached the place mrs brayfield met him lily is come i know it i have seen her is not she beautiful i must see more of her if i am to answer critically but before you introduce me may i be permitted to ask who and what is lily mrs brayfield passed the moment before she answered and yet the answer was brief enough not to need much consideration she is a miss mordaunt an orphan and as i before told you resides with her aunt mrs cameron a widow they have the prettiest cottage you ever saw on the banks of the river 
or rather rivulet, about a mile from this place. Mrs. Cameron is a very good, simple-hearted woman. As to Lily, I can praise her beauty only with safe conscience, for as yet she is a mere child, her mind quite unformed. Did you ever meet any man, much less any woman, whose mind was formed? muttered Kenham. I am sure mine is not, and never will be on this earth. Mrs. Brayfield did not hear this low-voiced observation. She was looking about for Lily, and perceiving her at last as the children who surrounded her were dispersing to renew the dance, she took Kenham's arm, led him to the young lady, and a formal introduction took place. Formal as it could be on those sunlit awards, amidst the joy of summer and the laugh of children, in such scene and such circumstance, formality does not last long. I know not how it was, but in a very few minutes, Kenham and Lily had ceased to be strangers to each other. They found themselves seated apart from the rest of the merry-makers, on the bank shadowed by lime-trees, the man listening with downcast eyes, the girl with mobile shifting glances, now on earth, now on heaven, and talking freely, gaily, like the babble of a happy stream, with a silvery dulcet voice and a sparkle of rippling smiles. No doubt this is a reversal of the formalities of well-bred life and conventional narrating thereof. According to them, no doubt it is for the man to talk and the maid to listen but I state the facts as they were, honestly. And Lily knew no more of the formalities of drawing-room life than a skylark fresh from its nest knows of the song-teacher in the cage. She was still so much of a child. Mrs. Brayfield was right. Her mind was still so unformed. What she did talk about in that first talk between them that could make the meditative Kenham listen so mutely, so intently, I know not. At least I could not jot it down on paper. I fear it was very egotistical, as the talk of children generally is, about herself and her aunt and her home and her friends, all her friends seemed children like herself, though younger, Clemmy, the chief of them, Clemmy was the one who had taken a fancy to Kenham, and amidst all the ingenious prattle there came flashes of a quick intellect, a lively fancy, nay, even a poetry of expression of sentiment. It might be the talk of a child, but certainly not of a silly child. But as soon as the dance was over, the little ones again gathered around Lily. Evidently she was the prime favourite of them all, and as her companions had now become tired of dancing, new sports were proposed, and Lily was carried off to prisoners' bays. "'I am very happy to make your acquaintance, Mrs. Chillingly,' said a frank, pleasant voice, and a well-dressed, good-looking man held out his hand to Kenham. "'My husband,' said Mrs. Brayfield, with a certain pride in our look. Kenham responded cordially to the civilities of the master of the house, who had just returned from the city office, and left all his cares behind him. 
you had only to look at him to see that he was prosperous and deserved to be so there were in his countenance the signs of strong sense of good humor above all of an active energetic temperament a man of broad smooth forehead keen hazel eyes firm lips and jaw with a happy contentment in himself his house the world in general mantling over his genial smile and outspoken in the metallic ring of his voice you will stay and dine with us of course said mr brayfield and unless you want very much to be in town to-night i hope uh, you will take a bed here kenham hesitated do stay at least till to-morrow said mrs brayfield kenham hesitated still and while hesitating his eyes rested on lily leaning on the arm of a middle-aged lady and approaching the hostess evidently to take leave i cannot resist so tempting an invitation said kenham and he fell back a little behind lily and her companion thank you very much for so pleasant a day said mrs cameron to the hostess lily has enjoyed herself extremely i only regret we could not come earlier if you are walking home said mrs brayfield let me accompany you i want to speak to your gardener about his heart's ease it is much finer than mine if so said kenham to lily may i come too of all flowers that grow heart's ease is the one i most prize a few minutes afterward kenham was walking by the side of lily along the banks of a little stream tributary to the thames mrs cameron and mr brayfield in advance for the path only held two abreast suddenly lily left his side allured by a rare butterfly i think it is called the emperor of morocco that was sunning its yellow wings upon a group of wild reeds she succeeded in capturing this wanderer in her straw hat over which she drew her son veil after this notable capture she returned demurely to kenham's side do you collect insects said that philosopher as much surprised as it was his nature to be at anything only butterflies answered lily they are not insects you know they are souls emblems of souls you mean at least so the greek prettily represented them to be no real souls the souls of infants that die in their cradles unbaptized and if they are taken care of and not eaten by birds and live a year then they pass on into fairies it is a very poetical idea miss mordaunt and founded on evidence quite as rational as other assertions of the metamorphosis of one creature into another perhaps you can do what the philosophers cannot tell me how you learned a new idea to be an incontestable fact i don't know replied lily looking very much puzzled perhaps i learned it in a book or perhaps i dreamed it you could not make a wiser answer if you were a philosopher 
but you talk of taking care of butterflies how do you do that do you impale them on pins stuck into a glass case impale them how can you talk so cruelly you deserve to be pinched by the fairies i am afraid thought kenham compassionately that my companion has no mind to be formed what is euphoniously called an innocent he shook his head and remained silent lily resumed i will show you my collection when we get home they seem so happy i am sure there are some of them who know me they will feed from my hand i have only had one die since i began to collect them last summer then you must have kept them a year they ought to have turned into fairies i suppose many of them have of course i let out all those that had been with me twelve months they don't turn into fairies in the cage you know now i have only those i caught this year or last autumn the prettiest don't appear till the autumn the girl here bent her uncovered head over the straw hat her tresses shadowing it and uttered loving words to the prisoner then again she looked up and around her and abruptly stopped and exclaimed how can people live in towns how can people say they are ever dull in the country look she continued gravely and earnestly look at that tall pine tree with its long branch sweeping over the water see how as a breeze catches it it changes its shadow and how the shadow changes the play of the sunlight on the brook wave your tops ye pines with every plant in sign of worship wave what an interchange of music there must be between nature and a poet kenham was startled this an innocent this a girl who had no mind to be formed in that presence he could not be cynical could not speak of nature as a mechanism a lying humbug as he had done to the man poet he replied gravely the creator has gifted the whole universe with language but few are the hearts that can interpret it happy those to whom it is no foreign tongue acquired imperfectly with care and pain but rather a native language learned unconsciously from the lips of the great mother to them the butterfly's wing may well buoy into heaven a fairy soul when he had thus said lily turned and for the first time attentively looked into his dark soft eyes then instinctively she laid her light hand on his arm and said in a low voice talk on talk thus i like to hear you but kenham did not talk on they had now arrived at the garden gate of mrs cameron's cottage and the elder persons in advance paused at the gate and walked with them to the house end of volume 6 end of section 46 recording by jyoti taravnat End of Library of the World's Best Literature 
Ancient and Modern, Volume 6, 